Welcome to Blackbird episode number 91. My name is James, and today I am joined once again by Mark Changizi. You'll remember him. We talked about it a year or so ago, and I don't remember the episode number, so I'll put it in the show notes for those who are curious. I don't have a whole lot of announcements today, although I guess I am streaming on Facebook and Twitch for the first time. So welcome, Facebook and Twitch watchers, if you're there. And with that, let me bring Mark back into the show. Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be here. So I wanted to talk to you about a couple of specific topics, but you know, as this show goes, we'll probably veer off into a lot of different topics. Before we do anything, though, why don't you kind of reintroduce yourself to the audience since it has been a while since you were here last time? Yeah. You know, I'm a scientist, a theorist, a cognitive scientist, PhD was math, undergrad physics math, but I went on and sort of studied why the brain evolved to be the way it is, why we evolved to be the way we are psychologically, physically, uh, why culture has evolved in the ways that it has. So for just a couple of things, you know, why we have pruny fingers. It turns out they're optimized to be rain treads so that they don't hydroplane when it's you know, rainy or dewy. Why you see in color vision, it turns out our, our kind of peculiar primate variety color vision is for seeing blood under the skin so that you can see health and emotions on bare skin. Um, how did we come to have writing? You know, we didn't evolve to read, but it turns out cultural evolution shaped letters to look like nature, to look like the contour conglomerations that happen in just three-dimensional objects, arrangements of objects. And so by looking like nature, then it harnessed our object recognition brain and transformed it into a reading brain. So varieties of things like that, always in new areas, uh, trying to find rigorous ways of testing uh, theories about uh, the general uh, design and function of us or how culture has uh, harnessed those uh, evolutionary designs and functions. Is it safe to say that most of your work is on human communication or is it broader than that? No, yeah, no, it's not on, it, it happens to be that, yeah, I guess when you start, I do have a book that's on the origins of music and the origins of language and this upcoming book, uh, uh, Express the Human, is about the origins of emotional expressions, how, so, what, what emotional expressions are uh, sort of a full theory for for really what they are in, in, in social animals' uh, lives, but no, it's, it it happens to be that those are some biggies that have to do with communication. But no, there's all kinds of stuff there. Cool. Last time we talked, FreeX was kind of in its infancy. What are you doing there nowadays? Yeah, so FreeX is an, a research institute by my colleague Tim Barber and myself. It comes out of the research that we've been doing for the last ten years, which led to this, this leading to this book this summer called Expressly Human decoding the language of emotion. But when COVID happened, really the next research direction that it motivated me to work on was how does, you know, because suddenly the world was attacked by mass hysteria and then civil rights violations and violations of free expression, which we're still dealing with. And all of these things are kind of intercombined because in order to understand how collective hysteria spreads across social networks, which is one of the greatest dangers that really mankind faces, you have to understand how free expression functions in social networks and how it misfunctions or misfires when things are going wrong, when there's things being censored. So this is trying to study um, free expression, the importance of free speech for freedom generally, and the complex ways in which it works in social networks. 
And uh, so that what is freex.group or the free expression group, which is just really all about that. Cool. I think that's one of the more important things that is happening in the world today is these um, the kind of free expression, free speech movement, just because not only the social networks, but now the government has gotten involved in, in that as well. And, you know, that's a clear violation of our First Amendment rights, let alone human rights. And you're also part of a lawsuit, right? Along the same kind of lines? Yeah, so it's, it's Changizi versus the Department of Health and Human Services. It's three plaintiffs, Daniel Kotzen, Michael Sanger, and myself, and uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Janine Yunus is, is our lawyer who works with them. And uh, we're suing the federal government for arm-twisting unabashedly starting last April or May. Uh, this was when, I don't know if you recall, Saki came out on TV saying that we're working with big tech social media. We're flagging which posts they should have censored, which people should be censored. And anybody who's censored in one big tech social media company should be censored in all of them, obviously, she announces. And then in the same sentence, she followed up with, and we're also actively looking at antitrust monopoly regulations that can be placed on these things. So these are explicit threats. And... Um, the culture of the left, unfortunately, in the United States has moved to be unabashedly believing that censorship is the good and right thing to do, that there's misinformation and disinformation. And anybody who believes that misinformation should be allowed is fascist. I mean, they actually think that these are signs of authoritarianism, that you would be supportive of free expression. Uh, and this isn't being parroted all over the world. In Canada, uh, it was being parroted by their prime minister the same kind of attitude has suddenly somehow infected the left that free expression is a sign of fascism. And of course, that's just not even a thing that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. The other thing, though, that I'm seeing is that this sort of censorship has gone from COVID, which, you know, I mean, sure, COVID was a nasty virus and, you know, it's life and death. You know, if someone gets the wrong information about COVID, then, then they could have really dire consequences, arguably. But now it's moved into Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, if you're spreading, quote, misinformation about that, now they're censoring that. And, you know, I mean, lots of us predicted a, a slippery slope here. Do you think that this goes even further to just whatever the sort of progressive agenda is for the day? Yeah, I mean, and we, we of course, had seen signs of this earlier. You know, 2020 wasn't the first time that, or 2021 especially wasn't the first time that people had been censored. If you say the wrong thing about trans swimmers, uh, you could easily be taken off of, of Twitter as well. But it certainly became disproportionately worse after, after COVID. And it seemed to have really spiked after the Biden administration decided that, yeah, we really have to crack down on all censorship and we have to do so much, you know, uh, social media needs to do a much better job at their, whatever their existing level of censorship was, wasn't enough and they need to ramp it up. And uh, so our, the, our lawsuit was, we're suing about, this is a First Amendment violation. When the government tries to use private companies as a proxy for their censorship, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And really, that we had a, our first appearance was on Thursday. Daniel Kotzen and myself were on the witness stand, uh, cross-examined by the federal government's lawyer. And our case, really, the preliminary injunction was to stop the request for information that the Surgeon General has put in a couple months ago, asking social media of all kinds, even Telegram and all of these other ones have to provide the government. They don't have to, but they are a request for information to provide the government the names of all the misinformants on social media. This exactly sounds like just give us an enemies list. 
So this was the nature of the preliminary injunction. We're still waiting on the judge's decision about whether or not he's going to make a maybe try to stop this request for information from the federal government, which is due on May 9th. So there is some urgency to this. Do you know if your or your co-plaintiff's names were on the were on the naughty list from the government? We have a freedom of information request. We don't have that information back, though. Okay. Oh, man. I remember when they came out with that just matter-of-fact announcement that we're going to be working with social media companies to censor people. I couldn't believe that they were so blatant about it. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's I think the culture itself, and I, I don't listen to NPR, but I remember just one time a year, more than a year ago, I was listening, and I just couldn't believe on NPR. It was, just, it was constant how bad YouTube, how bad Twitter, Facebook has been to allow as much misinformation as they've been allowing. And mm-hmm. they have to do so much more. And it was just banging in your head over and over. So this kind of narrative that has crept into the left in much of the world, and it's just not stopped. So they, they really believe this and they don't see the fascistic nature to it. And they're not appalled by it anymore because it's just sort of swept through their own heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elon Musk recently posted a meme. It's been creating a lot of, conversation and debate, at least in libertarian circles, the meme kind of depicted a little stick figure who was a centrist standing next to a little pole in the center of the left and right binary spectrum. And it showed the left like sprinting to the left and dragging the center with it, which is, I mean, that's kind of the trajectory. The center does have like a leftward drift anyway. But then it showed the right standing still and the centrist standing still, but the center of the political spectrum moving so far to the left that it makes the centrist seem like a conservative and the conservative right. seem like the far right. Do you right. think that that's accurate? I mean, is it a little, is a little bit, uh, I don't know, hyperbolic? Does it miss some of the trends on the right? I, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, it's a first order. We've all felt that over the years, but you know, it's, it's a, a single dimension is, is way too simple. And something yeah. that I've talked about many times sure. from starting from a year and a half ago, but I mean, the, the real axes, are there's two axes, not one. It's not just left and right. And really to understand what's been going on, uh, on along the left, I mean, for those that haven't seen it before, and James, I'm sure you have, maybe this is useful. If you've got, uh, this is, if you've got, uh, here's a graph, right? You have uh, personal freedom going up this way, mm-hmm. and then you've got economic freedom going up this way, uh, or maybe the other way around, uh, let's say. Uh, let's see. I have to think. I'm always getting confused left and right when I'm doing this. But, <laughs> yeah, the cameras uh, are moving. I want, wait, is this to your left or is this That's to, to your my right? right? Okay, so it's not That's to my flip. right, but I don't know what it looks like on YouTube. It might be, it might even yeah, be I opposite. There. Sure. Sometimes it flips later. I'm always right. Yeah. So this is the left. So that we want this to be high personal freedom. So this is the personal uh-huh. freedom axis: more freedom, less freedom. This is the economic freedom: more economic freedom, less economic freedom. So the, traditionally, the right would be way over here. High on economic freedom, low like the stereotype of what they're right, and um, and low on on personal freedom, and the and the left would be over here. And that kind of makes sense when you have this sort of these two dimensions in a diagonal way like this. You end up with a nicely left and right. Um, but the problem is that since COVID and potentially before, but at least since COVID, the left has moved to being ec- wanting to uh, have very low economic freedom and personal freedom. Right? Yeah. You don't have a right to choose um, what your clothing you're going to wear and what whether you have bodily autonomy for vaccinations. Right. So the left is no longer on the left. The left is no longer here. The left is way down here in the authoritarian position. This is authoritarian. This is libertarian is up here. And the right has moved from over here up to here. So really, it's not that the left is running this way. It's that the left has, has switched down to here. Yeah. And the right has switched up to here. The entire argument right now is libertarian 
there's freedom on both economic and personal realms versus the left, who's now not left at all, but down here, mm. which is authoritarian on both realms. So th that's, I think, a much more uh, helpful way to see what's happening. It's a much more, it's not just a stretching. No, it's complete ortho, you know, 90 degree shift of where the yeah. debate traditionally was. That chart that you're describing is called the Nolan chart. And, right. uh, you know, audience, if you're interested in taking it, it's made by a libertarian organization called the Center for Self-Governance or something like that. But if you want to take the quiz, it's called the world's smallest political quiz. It's like six questions. It'll plot you on the chart. And, I mean, it's from a libertarian perspective, but the chart itself is fantastic. I think it's even better than the four quadrants that uh, is sort of the meme chart that's used anyway. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the real reason that I asked you to be on the show was because of this article that you published in Forbes. You said that, you know, now that we've mapped the genome, let's map the teleome. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. First of all, just kind of lecture us on what the, what the teleome is. Yeah, so the problem in, in biology is that, and actually I don't know how it, I mean, there's a long history, but even biology has gotten infused with politics and leftism. Mm. Uh, and it's been going on um, since the 80s. For those that wanted to understand biology uh, the way that it was understood in the early 20th century, you want to understand biology, you can't just look at the genes. Uh, you can't just look at the low-level mechanisms for how the billiards balls all bounce together. Um, because in order to understand any machine that's been designed, you have to understand what it's for. You have to understand why it's that way. What is it for as an engineered device? Now, the problem is that a lot of people um, used to be happy to talk about the design or what it's for when it was about very kind of um, non-brainy kinds of things. So maybe some people would be less offended uh, if it was about pruny fingers being for rain treads. People were, and it turns out even the biological community, when I published that paper 10 years ago, people are all out in arms. They're like, no, you, that, you can't talk about things, what they're for. That's just, that's just a just so story. Uh, that's just fake science. And it's like, well, these are the same people uh, who are constantly arguing that natural selection, anybody who is so dumb if you don't believe in natural selection, but those same scientists, when you actually pose a hypothesis and provide evidence for actual design, that it's designed for something, they freak out and then somehow don't forget the fact that that's the whole point of natural selection. The whole point of natural selection is that you get design without a designer. But somehow that whole community has come to believe that you know there's no design at all. No, that wasn't the point. The point of natural selection, the reason that Darwin is a genius, and it's one of the biggest discoveries ever, if not the biggest discovery ever, is it explains all the massive, you know, astronomical piles of design all around us, and it never needed to hypothesize a god or some kind of central community to do it. It's done in a decentralized manner, and it happens all by itself through natural selection. And if they get freaked out for pruning rain treads, which are kind of very physically kind of stuff, then they yeah. get a thousand times more freaked out if you talk about it for anything that's psychological or mental or anything like this. And so they would attack sociobiology. E.O. Wilson was attacked, even though he was very far left, but he was attacked uh, as being a racist homophobe or something just because he put forth the idea that, yeah, we're born with certain kinds of instincts. We have certain kinds of mechanisms in our brains. We're not blank slates. This is what Stephen Pinker's book, Blank Slate, is about. It's, it's, it's both about the arguments that, no, we're not blank slates. We come into the world piled high with thousands and thousands and millions of instincts, and that's what makes us smart. Being having a, being a general learning machine isn't smart. Uh, and he and he also half the book is describing how the left attacks everybody who makes those kinds of arguments because the idea of the left was 
every child can be infinite is infinitely shapeable into any kind of person, any kind of thing, which is more of the sort of communist ideal, which is in fact not the case at all. Humans aren't unlike all of the other animals. We are piles of instincts just as are they. So the telium, uh, and there's a lot of the di different ways from going from there, but the telium was, an arc was pointing out that, look, it's not enough to understand the genome, which is the sort of this bottom level instructions from the genes to understand how an animal is made. And there's something called the phenome, which is sort of the description of all the things that the, uh, that the animals might do, like at the phenotype level. But still, neither of those concern the design, what they're designed for. And teleology is the word that we use for design. Like that's the, the word that's described, design. It's sort of a bad word. And it's not a bad word. It's treated as if it's a bad word, but it's not a bad word. It's crucial for understanding any engineered object. And this is just happens to be engineered by natural selection. The teleome then would be a list of all of the kinds of design features that are just like when you buy some kind of thing, you would read through the leaf through the book and says, okay, this is the button that enables it to, you know, and now allows your new machine that you've just purchased to do this and to do that. Packaging it up all about what it's for, what it's for. And if you can't understand anything unless you have the what, what it's for's. And so I was trying to just uh, be very explicit and that people just have to stop being embarrassed about talking about design because we can't make any progress in neuroscience or biology without it. But it's become a political uh, 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 issue somehow within in that field. That reminds me a lot of the postmodernists, actually. So they were kind of a reaction to the nuclear bomb. The criticism, of course, was that science was so focused on can we do this, it didn't focus on why should we do this or, or should we do this, not even a why. Why do you think science has, over the last century or so, become such like an amoral, non-purpose-driven thing? Why, why do they focus on the what it does rather than the how it works or, wh or why it exists? Yeah, I mean, as it turns out, uh, leftism and politics seems to have bled into it starting in the late 70s and 80s. And then mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology was then attacked. And now anybody often who's focusing on design questions is attacked. And I, as far as I can tell, it seems to just emanate from this idea that if you're positing that we have design in us when we're born, then you're inherently somehow saying that people cannot overcome certain kinds of things. And that makes you inherently oh, sure. old fashioned conservative to even do that. And so I, uh, so I, 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 I don't have a, a deep theory about the, the roots of, of why exactly that happened, but it, it seems to be uh, having just a, a, a political origins in the, in the late seventies, as far as I can tell, coming from far left um, thought. So is it sort of the flattening of hierarchies and just the obsession with equality at, at any cost? And so if we focus on why this entity exists, it might come about that some of this entity are better at it than others creating, creating hierarchies. And if, you know, and if humans are just animals, then there might be some better humans than others as well. Yeah, I think ultimately it's something along those lines. As soon as you start positing that there's innate differences between mm -hmm. there's variability amongst humans because there's, there's variability. I mean, it, it doesn't really even make any sense because even if you were general purpose learning machines and we're all infinitely blank slates, if that was the case, it doesn't mean that every blank slate is, is equivalent. There's lots of blank slates that could learn things much quicker than other blank slates. That is, that is if you're dealing with a computational way and modeling different kinds of highly universal learning systems, which are, isn't even such a thing. That is, there's no such, but you can imagine some 
uh, learning systems, which are flatter priors, let's say prior mm-hmm. probabilities are all flatter uh, in some bat massive multidimensional space versus some others, which are much more spiky in like they're really able to quickly learn. Even so, you can imagine some kind of mechanisms uh, where they could be equally uh, flat in terms of, uh, but just some are really much better than others. So it's not like you're getting rid of all possible variability from you know, across animals just because you're rejecting. But nevertheless, that is the intuition. People believe that as soon as you start attributing innate differences, um, then you're opening yourself up to all kinds of worse, the worst kinds of racism, <clears throat> sexism, et cetera. Yeah, it seems kind of command and control. Like they're worried that this is going to happen if people are left to their own devices. Well, yeah, it's like worried. Like if Musk uh, dares let people say what the, the people want yeah. in the public square, all kinds of you know, awful things will happen. Can you imagine living in a world where people can be on Twitter and saying whatever <laughs> they want? You know, and they're just pulling their hair out. Like this is happening right now in real time. People saying that. Yeah. Okay. So, do you think that humans, like the entity human, has a purpose, or is that a strictly individual thing that has to be worked out by the individual? Uh, you mean, when you say the entity human, is, a, is there some, as a species, as, yeah, as individuals like a, of that species? Like a telos of the person. Yeah, I, I think that would have to be an individual. Certainly when, when I'm talking about the teleome or the, the, <clears throat> the, the set of, these are the things that we've, we, we have um, evolved to be piles of these engineered, you know, toolkits, just filling our bodies, our brains are just you know, speckled with them, all of our bodies are filled with these. None of those, uh, none of those design what fors or maybe anything that any of us want our lives to be about. That's a, you know, our lives are about much more complex uh, uh, you know, things that we want to have done and have nothing to do with those. We just take those things for granted as, mm-hmm. uh, as our biological telium, but we don't really consider that something. So as, as for, you know, what an individual person's telium would be, they, yeah, it's just going to have to be uh, vary from person to person. I find a lot of folks sometimes don't have a telium at all. They, they don't have a purpose to life. They, it's not their personality type to have one. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been one that since I was eight years old, a Carl Sagan Cosmos kid, my aim has always been to answer the questions to the universe. So I had a very romantic you know, uh, purpose in life since I was a kid, and I've been aimed at it. But I've often found that when I communicate that to others, they, they don't have anything equivalent for them. and. So I don't think that's potentially even something that many people need. Do you think that's the difference between the so-called NPC meme and those of us who would like to hope that we're not NPCs? Are you familiar uh, with the NPC meme? I may be, but I don't know. Okay, so the NPC is like the, the non-player character in a video game. It's someone who's just basically following a script, not really thinking oh. for himself. And the meme is that people who basically just parrot CNN... Mm-hmm. without really thinking or the democratic or republican party line without really like thinking for themselves critically yeah. are the npcs in real society and you know it turns out that most people are this because you you know they have better things to do than than try to solve the problems of the universe right right yeah i i i, I don't know i often i can certainly see how those those are more likely to be sh- passive sheep you might call them mm-hmm. but i think the worst the ones that were more dangerous are potentially the ones who are do have a purpose in life and their purpose becomes deeply politically, you know, it's, it's some kind of uh, moral, right, righteous, moral uh, aim to whatever it might be and whatever the thing at the moment is. And it switches from, you know, canceling the unvaccinated to uh, 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 canceling Russians the next week. But they're, 
their purpose is wrapped up in where wherever the swaying winds are, as opposed, you know, so they're they're active active sheep, you know, herders of sheep rather than just. And and I, I would imagine those are much more dangerous, and they, certainly those are the folks that caused all the trouble or disproportionately caused the trouble uh, for COVID and COVID mass hysteria. Yeah, it's like the the groupings that I can't remember the psychologist's name who came up with the idea that we were sort of being mass programmed. There's like the people who, I think it was like 30% were just completely going to buy into this and they were the really, really active, the people screaming at their fellow shoppers at the grocery store for not properly wearing their mask. And then there was maybe 30% who were completely not susceptible to the mass hysteria. And then there was the 40% in the middle that were just kind of going along with whatever until they got sick of it. Right. I don't I mean, Matthias Desmond is the one that, that I think That's you're talking it, about. Yeah, thank you. I, I don't know whether those are, I think those they may just be off of the cuff example numbers. I'm yeah. not sure if there's, yeah. if, if there's real data behind that. And and so I, it's often curious whether the, you know, how much, you know, the active herders, sheep herders, let's call it, who are morally righteously, you know, causing troubles. It could mm-hmm. only be that there's, a, you just need a 1% of those, but they're really annoying and really righteous and they can cause real trouble. <laughs> And it could be that there's 90% in the middle that just don't care. They've got other aims in life that or, or no aims in life. They're just, they, but they're happy to put, okay, fine. I don't, want, I don't want to fuss. And they put on a mask. And so then you've got even 10%, let's say, who are fighting the 1%. But it's much easier for the 90% to go along to 1%. And so it seems like we're overwhelmed, even though we're 10%, mm-hmm. more than 1%, because we're not the canceller type. We're not the types that are going to go after you and ruin your, you know, we don't, we're not the type that would do that. So they just banned. And um, so it, it's unclear, you know, where, where those numbers are. I wish we had better yeah. data. And, well, and, and we don't have the, we don't have the regime on our side either. Yeah. And we don't have the regime. Yeah. So speaking of COVID, I guess, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to stop talking about it soon, but, <laughs> but, uh, or at least, you know, as soon as your book has sold a trillion copies and, and we're, you know, ready to move on to the next thing. You've done a lot of work on masks, a lot of commentary and theorizing and things like that. It seems to me that not only do you think that masks don't do a whole lot to slow the spread of the virus, but they're actually harmful to the human psyche. Is that right? And if so, can you kind of expand on it a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, so... I, I, in my YouTube series, the Science Moment series, I've covered mm-hmm. now um, probably 35, 37 or different episodes on face masks, and and none of them have been on the obvious sides of covering over your only two breathing holes and having the kind of cardiovascular issues that come with that. Because I'm trying to focus on my in my series on stuff that no one else is saying. There's plenty of stuff that yeah. sort of the, you're covering your only breathing holes is obvious in some sense. It ought to be obvious, and so I'm trying to focus other kinds of things. So. I've been focusing a lot on um, perceptual issues on what you're missing perceptually as the wearer and what others are missing perceptually and looking at you and also emotional expressions. And, and, and it turns out there's lots and lots of angles on these things. So the very first one, that, actually, the very first video that I did, you know, my science moment series was on number 51 and then COVID hit. And at that before COVID hit, I was just talking about kind of just things related to my research. Just It was just research science stuff related to my ideas. And then COVID hit and I just stopped my series. I said, I can't just continue talking about the same old stuff, same old way. It's just, it's like some artist who continues doing the same kind of art after World War II hit, you know, it'd just be bizarre. Now these, these world changing events like that just feel, felt odd to talk about the same old stuff that you were talking about. So after five or six months, I realized that no, uh, 
there's so many interesting things to talk about that in just masks alone, but generally with the mass hysteria and the, and the human cognitive biases and free expression and, and how it works in complex networks and, and masks, there was just too many interesting things. Right? In, fact, in addition to being one of the scariest things that most of us have experienced, if you haven't already seen kind of collective hysteria, 2020 was, um, was, was bizarrely frightening because you just watched all of your friends, many of the people that you love, just turn into crazy Karens who would turn against you if they felt that you weren't sufficiently um, respecting how dangerous the virus was or how important the interventions. So suddenly for the first time, we were seeing signs of the stuff that have happened in you know, the Cultural Revolution in China and, and Nazi Germany and uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran and all, you know the Hutus and Tutsis, these kinds of collective hysterias where they suddenly have outgroups that are hated and you're seeing it all around you and it's spreading, it was spreading worldwide. This is scientifically interesting. So I devoted, I said, okay, let's restart the series and let's just focus on all of these so many interesting scientific issues that are connected to this. And so the very first one that I did actually was on face masks and on how they block your vision. Mm-hmm. We don't think of, of them as blocking your vision because they're kind of down here, but you don't realize it. But your vision, you see your own feet when you walk, even when you're looking for it. You actually, you actually see your own cheeks in your visual field, in your far visual field, like at the perimeter, at the edge of your visual field. So it's not like you're seeing them so much as the edge of your vision is them, right? And so as they modulate up and down or change, you actually, it's affecting your visual field or affecting your vision in the sense that it's affecting the limits of your visual field. And that's important because, and, and, and to convince you of that, why do you think that football players, for example, put black on their cheeks? They're doing that because it reduces the amount of light that reflects off their cheeks into their eyes. And that's just another way of saying that their cheeks are in their, in their visual field. So when you put a mask on, you're, if you actually start showing where it's blocking like you see where which part of the ground is blocking you realize you're barely you're not seeing your nose anymore which is always visible you can always see your nose in your visual field and you can't see um your cheeks and sometimes even your lips and you can you're no longer able to see your feet we use the far parts of our visual field to uh deal with you know uh, just deal with navigation with you see the optic flow coming towards you the world moving towards your individual field and you see this implicitly without having to look directly at it and that's how you guide your behavior so that we can have uh, gorgeous amazing acrobatic behavior that, that we have you cut that you're much more likely to engage and to have a fall and falls no one's measuring how many more falls fall related injuries we have but there's 600,000 deaths per year normally from falls worldwide and there's several million of hospitalizations. Uh, so you suddenly have everybody with masks walking around doing all the kinds of things. Then just that alone, you know, maybe could you have had double the number of deaths? No one's measuring this to, to figure this out. There was no cost-benefit analyses. And so just one issue of just your lower visual field being blocked, which could have significant harms, was just one of dozens and dozens of kinds of harms, of less obvious harms, not even the obvious cardiovascular ones, um, that no one else was talking about. And so that was the first one that I did when I when I came. I was science moment one you know of 52 i'm now on 177 or something like this um but uh and let me just pause there before i just just sort of continue rambling but yeah but, but there's you know the emotion side there's all the other perceptual sides mm-hmm. there's there's so many facets to it yeah the emotional side i think is the one that sticks to me the most maybe to me it feels antisocial and if there is a telos to humanity, to me, it feels like building societies is sort of our purpose in order to sort of divide up the labor and, and that sort of thing. And to me, 
masks in public makes it so that we're not interacting with the people in our community. Because, you know, I mean, I don't talk to people really when I go to the grocery store or to the mall or whatever it is, but exchanging eye contact and smiling or scowling or, you know, just a quick nod or whatever it is, is obscured by the things that are obscuring our faces. And yeah, so I guess also, how does your Expressly Human book and thesis relate to this? Right. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the next book uh, coming on July called Expressly Human with Dr. Tim mm-hmm. Barber and I and working on it for 10 years, it's about the true language that we speak. The true language that we speak is emotional expressions. And so even right here when I'm talking to you, sure, I'm saying all these words, but if I suddenly started talking like this and only using just words without any intonation at all or prosody, you wouldn't want to listen even one more second because I'm missing I'm missing all of the stuff that makes it interesting. And it's not just, um, yeah. so the question is, what is it that the emotional expressions are doing? All of these kinds of emphases that I'm doing and I'm raising and all of these things are emotional expressions. And of course, you're, this is not just auditory, this is video too. So you see my emotional mm-hmm. gesturing. Uh, the true language that we're imparting is comes through the emotional expressions. And of course, the choice of words that I use often are, are, pack, are packing emotional expressions in there as well. So what this book is about is decoding, uh, in some sense, what the language of emotional expressions are. Because most of our human history, so in Harness, an earlier book, I've argued that we didn't evolve to have language. Language is not part of our instincts. Instead, cultural evolution over, you know, 200, 300,000 years ago, over time, we started inventing a language and language had to sound like something we were already good at hearing. Language evolved culturally over time to sound like solid object physical events. Hits, you know, when, when, what does object sound like? When an object hits another object, it hits. It's like mm-hmm. a pup, t- a plosive. And the other way that objects interact is they slide against one another. Those are like fricatives, fricatives like things like this. Yeah. And when an object hits or slides, the objects themselves vibrate, they ring. So, like if you have a coffee mug and you set it on the table, you hit a spoon to it, you'll hear both of those things ringing. And you can tell that it was a coffee mug that was being struck by a spoon, uh, not a, you know, a drinking, a, you know, whatever water bottle, a plastic water bottle being hit by a, a spoon. You'll, you can tell the difference. That's the nature of the ring. And those are like sonorants. They're called sonorants. Vowels, A-E-I-O-U, and then Y and W, which are sort of changing kinds of, uh, uh, they're also vowel-like. And, and so it's always a hit in a ring or a slide in a ring. That's the nature of, of physical events. And the sounds across all languages are always plosives in a vowel or a fricative in a vowel. They're always interaction in the ring. Those are called syllables. And when you continue to work out the kinds of grammatical structures that happen among solid objects, then you can say, you say, oh, well, this is what solid objects always sound like this. This is how solid object events sound. This is sort of this more complex grammar. You can keep sort of driving more and more complex stuff. And then you can ask in each case, is this what languages sound like, spoken languages? And they do over and over again. So Harness is about showing that the sounds of language evolved, culturally evolved, to sound like just events in the world. That's how we're able to hear them. But that was recent. Right? So that was a little bit of a deviation, that detour. Huh? That was recent. That's 200, 300,000. We've been, we've been smart hominids, smart humans and hominids before that for several million years before, you know, before our break with chimpanzees. And we were smart, great apes for a lot longer than that. Incredibly social, incredibly smart. How did we deal day after day with no language? How do they still do it, right? We now have languages. We think it's all because of language. No, 
mostly all day long, we're still coordinating our behaviors with everybody else just the way we used to 200,000 years ago and earlier when we didn't have language. And the way they all they were all doing it and the way the great apes still are and the way the dogs and other kinds of social animals still are using emotional expression. So this book is about deriving from first principles truly what emotional expressions, the space of emotional expressions are, how they work, what they mean, how they function so that we can be interacting and have the kinds of um, of, of complex interactive kinds of behaviors that we have in, 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 in social networks. And I'll, I mean, there's a book length um, a discussion there. But you cover uh, uh, it up with a mask, you've covered up that entire language. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's disproportionately happening all in here, a little bit on the eyebrows, but otherwise, you know, which is left, but otherwise you've covered it all over. And you've covered the, you know, the color of the skin as well. The color of the skin, our, our color vision earlier, you know, I mentioned earlier, one of my earlier discoveries from 20 years ago was that, the, you know, a part of the emotional expressions is not just the gestures and the facial expressions, but the color changes of skin itself, which is what our color vision evolved to see, which is being all the parts that pretty much change most are the parts that you're covering up with the mask as well. So this is not just like the elbow and the butt or, you know, the butt might be for some primates a little bit more similar because it's actually mm-hmm. up in the air and it's signaling and color changing. And it's, a, it's a, you know, something that's both has smells and looks, but so the face is disproportionately um, different than all of the other body parts. It's the TV screen. It's the social TV screen that has your identity. It's, it has these wide four-dimensional space of emotional expressions that, that we derive in the book and explain. It's what allows us to these, these interacting uh, back and forths of these expressions that allow us to engage in a kind of a conversation and come to a compromise quickly. And uh, without it, our language is gone. Our the basic language that we evolved is just cut off and just it blows my mind that um people would just say well you're just covering your face like how can you even say that sentence and put just (laughs) in front of it right it is a human effing face it is the center is it is everything there's just nothing but human faces the world for humans is other faces it is the screen upon which you've got you know 50 or so micro muscles moving all around Micro muscles, which don't do anything for chewing, basically, or for breathing. They're just there to wiggle and shake and, 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 and do this, all these complex modulations for other people. Mm-hmm. That's what they're for, right? And all of your, all of your uh, you know, another part of this is, this is, this is certainly the emotional expressive side. But the other part of this is that where are all of your sensing devices? Where are they? All of your sensing devices and all animals, all animals that move forward, Mm-hmm. put disproportionately much of their senses up at the tip, you know, at their head, because that's the part that leads. So once animals evolve to be like, if you're a, uh, if you're a floating jellyfish, you don't have a head, you don't have a part that leads. So they have a kind of a distributed network of, of neurons. But once you had animals that had heads because they were moving forward, the head is where they put all these sensing devices because that's where they need to be. And so that's also why the brain is in the head. This comes from my advisor, Chris Cherniak. It sort of made this sort of, point and as well he generally kind of predicted the structures of nervous systems by saving wire minimizing the amount of wire that's needed but it also explains why the brain is in the head because it would be probably safer to have the brain in your chest protected by all the stuff you don't want it out in front like at the leading edge of the vehicle in some sense but it's out at the leading edge of the vehicle because 90 you know 90 percent plus of all the senses are here the eyes the ears the nose the 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 taste all of the sensory endings, if the brain was down here, would have to have tons of wire all going down to get there. So instead, you want the brain right next to it. So you have all these little short wires that just go straight, straight into the brain without anywhere. So you've, 
all of our emotional, all of our senses um, are right, right here. And when you put a mask right here, you block all of them. You block the lower, far lower parts of your visual perception. You're blocking your ability to smell. You're blocking uh, your ability to, I mean, this is also the part in all animals where you reach out and you grasp and you eat. It's your main hand for all other animals except for humans. We have, you know, two nice hands for us primates. But the rest, it's the main grasper. For my pistachio, the parrot downstairs, he's climbing everything and he's using his beak. If this is one of our graspers. You cover this up. You cover one of the way, main ways we interact with the world. We smell, sniff, look at things closely, get there and use it. Everything that matters really uh, perceptually and emotionally and identity-wise is all here and breathing-wise. And... Uh, and then just like, oh, we'll just cover that up without any evidence that there's, uh, in fact, with counter evidence prior to this, all the RCTs mm -hmm. prior to, let's just, without, just, we're just going to do it. Um, and there couldn't possibly be any harms to covering up a human face. These are the broad-minded people who, you know, have very complex positions about biological sex and everything is super subtle. Oh my gosh, you shouldn't just be black and white. Like you should be super subtle about everything. And then. Uh, how about a mask over your face? Sure, it doesn't matter. There's no other possible downsides, you know. Just <laughs> so, a mask. It's just yeah. it's just a mask. Is it the case that every like solid scientific study, RCV, um, is that it? RCT. Oh, RCT. Thank you. That's come out even since COVID has sort of debunked the idea that it's that the masks are doing anything to stop the spread. Yeah, uh, like I know. Prior to COVID, like that was just the sort of conventional wisdom. These things aren't going to do anything, so don't wear them. <laughs> And after COVID, there were some lab studies where like a dummy head would cough into a mask and, right. you know, it would slow this particles. But in the real world and actual tests that, you know, have a control and a variable and all that stuff, I don't know of any that were. Yeah, no, there was, there's been two major normal style RCTs for masks. And one of them, the Danish study, uh, no effect. There was another study that was done in uh, Southeast Asia. The Abeluk was the main author. And the press went crazy. Oh my gosh! Is it, but actually, when you look at it, it's something like uh, cloth masks, no effect. Uh, surgical masks uh, may have had a ten percent effect mm -hmm. reduction if you actually took all. But there's all of these issues with, with their methodology that have been pointed and holes poked in them. But even if you take it on face value, it had had, had the most meager effect for just surgical masks that you can possibly imagine. So it's effectively uh, almost no effect. Right? So and. Um, lots of other studies, which aren't RCTs, but they're showing, you know, adjacent regions that both had or did not have masks. And you just see the exact same, the exact same you know, uh, graph, you know, some arbitrary shaped graph of the cases just due to that region in the same exact funny shape, um, region after region from adjacent areas. And so uh, across another thing just came out last week, uh, Western and Eastern Europe studies uh, of the counties or of the countries. Um, that had mask mandates and that didn't, and the <clears> correlations were either zero in terms of uh, cases and um, uh, mask conformance um, or negative uh, or positive in this case. In other, in other words, it, it, that is where there were some significant correlations was the more they wore masks, the more cases they had, not the other way around. So if anything, things right. are going in the wrong direction, um, never in the, in the right directions where masks uh, are shown to be effective. Yeah, which seems counterintuitive, but like, you know, I mean... At the very least, there's there's no conclusive evidence, and there's especially no conclusive evidence that the mandates worked. Right. So, what about little kids? They, I've I've heard that there's been just little kids who've been learning to talk for the last two years are having tremendous trouble learning language. Do you have insight on that? First of all, yes or no? 
I, I, I mean, no, I, I don't think I have any special insight on that. I haven't been okay. keeping up. I remember seeing a couple studies come through um, and on the, I think it was more general, uh, the general extent to which uh, age groups are behind in school. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was just language specific, but there certainly have been a lot of backwards lost uh, uh, school time and, and being pushed back by six months or a year, depending yeah, on certainly. the socioeconomic class and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that seeing lips is important for people in learning language. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how important it, you know, I think historically people thought it was really important. I, I don't, my own impression is it's not nearly as important as people think for learning language. Um, but you, you're missing emotional expressions. I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, catching up to do for, for some of these kids who've only seen other kids without, with their masks on or not getting the normal uh, uh, emotional development at the right time at the crucial points of their life. You know, these, these are mm-hmm. things that have to be done at the right ages. And if you miss those, those ages, you might always be uh, handicapped. I do wonder if there'll be like a spike in neurotypical kids being diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorder, like wrongly diagnosed just because they don't know how to express their emotions <laughs> because right. like they haven't, it hasn't been modeled for them. Well, yeah. I guess on the other hand, when you're that little, most of your human interaction is at home anyway, I think. You know, but that said, there's always the funny old man who smiles at the little kids in the grocery store and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope that the kids that have been born in the last few years don't turn out just completely screwed up. So, well, anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's the, the mass side of getting screwed up, but there's the, I, I feel as if, and I think there was data to, to back this up, that um, the degree to which people became swept up and it was a little bit related to younger ages younger mm-hmm. ages took it more seriously younger ages now are are potentially affected by this and thinking that uh, uh shutting down society locking down people potentially banishing people who don't uh take the right medication that they're, they're required to um yeah all of these things uh telling people that you're not allowed to come to our house if, unless you have taken a certain kind of medication i've heard all of these sorts of stories and then Oh my God, I found out later that Doug, he was at the party and he had been feeling a little sick, but he didn't tell anybody. And then they're all mad at Doug and like he's kicked out of their social group. These kinds of new kinds of OC, these kinds of neuroses are being baked into the ne- this next generation who now think it's totally okay to behave like this generally to other people. It's kind of a, you know, uh, just sort of them believing that that kind of authoritarianism, at least even at a cultural level, uh, amongst their friends, that kind of control is something that's okay to do. And I worry that that could stick with them for a lifetime. Yeah. I don't think I've lost friends, but I've certainly lost touch with a lot of friends who, you know, I mean, I've seen the people who I've lost touch with since, you know, they got the all clear that it was okay for them to leave the safety of their homes. But, you know, I mean, I was going to parties and going to dinner and hanging out with my people who weren't afraid for the, the entire two years. Yeah. So, in some sense, like, I hate to say that I've lost the friends, but the friendships just have kind of dwindled. And that's, you know, that's sad. And that's truly a loss in, in my life. And I know that there's a lot of people who, you know, their social circles are a little bit less, let's say, politically diverse than mine, who may have just completely lost touch with everybody close to them. Yeah. And I know that the mental health crisis is not helped by any of this. I would imagine that there's been a, a rise in suicides of all ages and things like that. So, and certainly drug use and, and alcohol use. I mean, al- liquor stores were <laughs> were among the essential businesses that were allowed to remain open. So, yeah. 
we went from drinking in bars to drinking alone, and that's very yeah. rarely a good idea. Right, right. Here in Minnesota, our governor's sign language interpreter, who it's kind of a cool thing, like rather than having a hearing person interpret the sign language, they'll have a hearing person sitting on the front row of the governor's address signing to the deaf person who's the actual on-camera interpreter. And that person in Minnesota gained some national attention because of the expression with which she signed. Yeah. You know, she puffs out her cheeks and she she kind of dances. It's it's right. a really it's a really fascinating thing to watch. It was the best part of the governor's press conferences all through COVID at the very least. You have recently done some videos on deaf people and why they're so expressive when they talk. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, 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 it only occurred to me in watching that, uh, what was that movie that won the uh, awards, Academy Award of some kind this year? Anyway, it's a, it's a deaf community movie and um, mm. it's great. You should see it. Uh, you just search on Deaf Academy Award and, you'll, and I'm forgetting the name right now. Anyway, okay. but we... And I talked about earlier, as I'm expressing and I'm engaged in uh, both emotional facial expressions, gestures and intonation, prosody and all these kinds of stuff in my talking here. But we don't tend to consciously notice it, right? Because we're just doing it all the time. We don't see those as emotional expressions. We just see that as talking. And you have to be point, you have to point it out and say, oh, I guess that really is emotionally expressing. But we don't feel how much our language is is soaking wet with emotions. Mm. But this is why to to non-deaf people who are watching deaf people, that's because we're not used to, to, you know, that culture of, of how they express themselves. So they, when they're they're the assumption should be that they've come to have their own, you know, cultural evolution of having sign language as their language. And they're going to be just as expressive in the way that they communicate as we are for us. Right. There's just, that's the kind of a human universal, except that they can't do it with the auditory side. So they have to put it all in the visual. So, the nice thing about it is that if you're not deaf and you're not familiar with that community and you look at them for the first time, you're like, holy crap, look how much emotion they're putting <laughs> into it. Because it's all in their face and all in their hands and their, exagger- and their gestures, they're doing it all in that modality. And you see it all, right? And it feels overwhelming, but if it's the exact same amount, you know, to first order, it's going to be the exact same amount that we're all doing. And that's what's nice because we things that are on your own body, your own spit, you don't taste your, you know, your own saliva. Right, you can't mm-hmm. taste it because it tastes like nothing to you. Um, but like a frog who had your saliva in your mouth, be like, "Oh, that's so weird, right?" It's because it's something outside of its baseline saliva taste. So our own emotional expressions we're just too used to; we can't see it any longer. And so that's why the deaf community is a nice example that really shows you the in the in the channel of information going from human to human at all time is just packed, it's just soaking wet with emotional expressions, and you can just see it when you watch real people, real deaf people you know, that are part of the deaf community signing rather than us, you know, that's why it was nice what you're describing, because I presume the person that is hearing does sign language as well as he or she does because they have parents or they chose to do it in college or something like this, but they may not truly be steeped in the way that our actual deaf person would be and putting as much emotion as they would in the community. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of it. That's, that's an interesting case. So that was one video that I talked about this. It's just a nice way to illustrate to us how much emotional, how emotional expressive we are because we're blind to it and you see it in them uh, very easily. Coda was the name of the movie. I looked it up oh, while yeah. you were talking. Yeah, I, yeah. I hadn't heard of it, but I'll, uh, I'll make yeah. sure to put a link to it if it's out on DVD or whatever. Yeah. Or DVD is still a thing even. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and this raises, by the way, the second, and I think you hinted, the second oh, video sure. I did uh, on, on the deaf was, you know, uh, 
there's two sides of it that are sort of obvious for masks. You know, you you're covering your lips. So the people that mm-hmm. would, there's or there's three sort of obvious things about it. Many of the people who are deaf are just hard of hearing, right? So there's probably 10% of the population is just hard of hearing or deaf, whereas the actually deaf deaf might be only one. I don't know the actual numbers, but there's possibly 10% that are significantly have troubles in hearing. And so you cover these things up, you're muffling it, and you're taking making it much harder for the for the you know the hearing hard of hearing community of who otherwise could hear you. And then those who, amongst those, of course, they're relying on your lips to, to, to lip read and, and they're relying on your facial expressions to give context, which is all being covered over. So it makes it much harder uh, for the deaf to get by. Um, but it's even worse than that in the sense, and the focus of this Science Moment video was to point, on something, point out something a little bit more subtle, is just to see how um, dead the universe has become for the deaf. Because for us, um, emotional expressions in our connection to others comes about visually uh, on the face and the gestures, but also auditory. So as we've been talking, so if you're in a restaurant and yeah, or if you're out there in the public and they're all wearing masks, let's say, you're still hearing voices, you're hearing the intonation of their voices. So you're getting, you're hearing the emotional sounds around you washing over you. But if you're deaf, everything that you get from the other people around you, all of the emotional live vitality that comes being in a human group is from the faces. Like, so, you know, that's what's fun about being at a restaurant or a bar. You just hear the hum of life around you. There's the hum yeah. of life. You know, you don't want to hear the one guy on a phone talking loudly. You want to hear the hum of many people talking. You feel the, the expressiveness, just the live vitality. But they don't get the deaf don't get that. They get that only by seeing the faces around them. As they scan the room, they see all of this life and vitality coming out of those faces. So they're missing all of that hum. And the hum that where they would usually get it is also gone. So they're just in a, you know, I don't know, it sounds to me, it feels like a nightmare situation. It would be more like us being at a social gathering where you've got earplugs in um, and you can't even see their mouths move and their facial discovery. There's just nothing, you know, you're just literally in a waste, in a, in a social wasteland. And that's what we've, uh, the, the deaf community has been, had to deal with uh, for the last two years when masks were around. I'd be curious if there's any commentary coming out of the deaf community on it. Um, it's really interesting to, imagine just kind of i mean it it almost feels scary like it feels like a psychological thriller or something like that yeah what like there's a tv show that's always i never have seen it but it always talks about the kind of crazy off the wall dystopian kind of psychological weird stuff yeah black mirror black mirror Mirror. 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 show yep (laughs) um let's go back real quick to written languages this is really not related to anything we've talked about except that you were talking about how the letters kind of look like the real world things. Do you have any idea why so many languages, like the Semitic languages particularly, do not include like actual characters for vowels? It's t- typically like a, like a tittle or or a little punctuation mark almost above the consonants. And often only only that in very formal writing, and that's yeah. often just not needed by context. The the vowels are 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 often known. Uh, I don't really have a good you know. There's there's um, there's Abu Gidas, there's uh, alphabets like ours where we've got both plosives and fricatives and vowels. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you've got Abu Gidas, if I'm pronouncing, which are, they're just consonants basically. And you can, there's sometimes little diacritical marks for the vowels, but often in writing, people don't ever even put them. And then there's syllable, syllabaries uh, where each each symbol just is a whole syllable or something like ba or, you know, K, like not just the letter K, but K, like, mm-hmm. so you're combining them. So the, the entire words will be shorter because 
Uh, and of course, then you've got logographs like Chinese, where each symbol stands for an entire word level um, aspect. Um, so as to why um, some languages went one of those routes versus the others, I don't actually have really any insights. Um, certainly as they become, you know, what, one of the things that I have looked at is that as the, the complexity of a letter goes, so um, some writing systems have more letters than others. Syllabaries will typically have more because they've got all of these different combinations of syllables, then they need a different character for each of them. So they might have, I don't know, a hundred or more uh, 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 different kinds of uh, symbols that they have in their writing system. Whereas ours only has 26 and some only have 18. Um, so for some of these ones that don't even have, barely have vowels. But what you find is that across these different kinds of alphabetic kinds of systems, not not counting logographs, which is where they're like Chinese, but the bigger, um, when you want to come up with more symbols in your writing system, there's two ways that you could do it. You could imagine that I have, let's say, I, I can draw little strokes. I can do a stroke that's like this. I can do, let's say, a curvy stroke or different kinds of stroke types. And I could, let's say, have always every letter, every letter just has, let's say, two strokes. And I just start... Um, and then as it gets bigger, I say, okay, now I've got so many, I've got 57 characters I need. I'm going to have three strokes now, and I'm going to have some with four strokes and some with five strokes, so that you end up, you're making bigger and bigger, more complex-looking uh, characters. The alternative would be that you come up with um, just more stroke types, but you keep the number of strokes per character about the same. And it turns out that when you look across 115 writing systems, the way that actual writing systems scale is that when they get bigger with more characters, they keep the same number of strokes per character. And it turns out to be about three. So they keep three strokes per character and they come up with more and more stroke types in those larger so that you can have the combinations that you need. And the idea, though, this is what got me into this sort of realm of research 10, 15 years ago, is that what... Three is typically what a typical junction, a junction in natural scenes, like a Y junction. Like you look at the corner of the room you're in, you've got three contours that meet at a, mm -hmm. you know, that meet at a point. Um, the average, there are, there are junctions like T junctions and L junctions, but most of the ones that are sort of useful and decomposing objects are going to be various different kinds of three um, component junctions. And so the idea was that writing systems are trying to make sure that they have only three strokes per character because that's the way that you're good at processing what those letters are. And then the entire word will have the complexity that's something more at the level of an entire object, something like this. So the next study was then saying, hey, if this is right, then it should be that the kinds of junctions that you find in writing systems, kinds of conglomerations of, of, of strokes in a letter, are not just the, the you know three, but they actually have the topological shape that you find in natural scenes, and that's actually was the case. So this was a earlier sort of seminal discovery in 2006 that basically writing systems have culturally evolved so that the letters look like nature. That is, they look like the kinds of contour conglomerations that happen in the real world amongst solid, amongst physical opaque objects, um, not like the ones that don't happen happen amongst opaque objects. So in this way, cultural evolution shaped. Remember, we talked about before, they shape the sounds of spoken language to sound like events. In this case, writing, which was much lighter than spoken language, culturally evolved so that the letters looked like um, parts of objects, so that the word looks like an object, has an object-like le le uh, level uh, interpretation from your brain's point of view. So that way, when you see it, 
the earliest V1 parts of your visual area is dealing with just individual stroke, individual sort of contours, which is what it's good at in case individual strokes. And then the later, high, you know, a couple of levels higher is dealing with the junctions, which is letters. And then by the end of this hierarchy of uh, um, this inferotemporal hierarchy, you're recognizing what would usually be recognizing whole objects is recognizing the whole word. So it's harnessing, this is the book Harnessed, um, Cultural Evolution figured out how to harness our object recognition system and use it instead as a reading system. But to do that, it had to make reading, it had to make writing look like nature. That was its hmm. trip. So it's not a coincidence that tree starts with T and the sound that a tree makes is kind of when it blows in the wind. Well, so this is a slightly different... Now that um, you can still you can still have it to be the case that that the letters themselves had no correlation to um, to the the sounds that they make. Um, yeah. Right. But it turns out that there's there's a you know into first order that's the case, but to second order there are a lot of things. So I talk about this in harness. Lots mm-hmm. of the sounds, um, um, lots of the uh, of the ways that we use sound often ha- like for example, b and p. Ba and pa are the same sound to first order, but right. ba is a is a bouncy sounding. It's it's a it, it's bouncy sounding, and in terms of it, when the collision happens, the collision sound it immediately follows by the ringing, which is like this regular sine wave kind of sound after the ba. Whereas a pa, there's a slight gap after you make the collision sound. It turns out there's a slight gap in, in time if you actually look at this at this at the um, at the the sound in, in, you know, over time, there's a little gap, and then the ringing happens. Now, that sounds like a really weird thing, and you don't consciously hear that gap, but you hear it just in the difference to, between the way that a buh and a puh, or a duh and a tuh, same kind of thing. And the difference happens in the real world, because that difference in whether there's the size of that little uh, temporal gap that makes it sound like a buh versus a puh with that gap is a very natural ecological thing. It's just namely the bounciness of the thing versus the not. As it, like a, so if you've got a full basketball, you bounce it, it hits the ground, and then it comes very quickly off of the ground and starts its, its vibrating. But if it's mm-hmm. a flat basketball, like you've all played with, like, oh, this is a crappy basketball, and but we don't have a pump, so we're going to play with it anyway. And it, it hits, but it spends more time on the ground, and when it, it takes longer for it. So it's a bigger, between the sound of the hit, it takes longer before the thing starts to, to, to do its ringing once it leaves the ground. It's sort of free to now ring in, in its normal vibrating way, and you hear that difference. That's mm-hmm. the same difference between buh and puh. And, and in fact, so buh and duh are inherently bouncy sounding sounds versus puh and kuh and tuh are more breaky, crackly yeah. kinds of sounds. And so there's the standard story like where um, I can't remember who first published it, but they say one of these is one of these makes the sound of buh and the other one makes the sound of puh. And then they just show you two pictures. One is very jaggedy kind of thing like this. And the other one's like a very cloud looking cloud, you know, kind of cloudy looking thing with very smooth surfaces and so they asked people this is 25 year old experiments which one is buh uh, and which one is puh and people always think that the bat, the smooth one is buh and the other one is puh and historically the argument was something about the way that your mouth looks while you're doing it because it, i was like no that has nothing to do with it but the point is that these very fundamental physical object difference sounds are correlated with how things look Things that look a certain kind of way, you know what they're going to sound like when they grant, when they when they bounce and they make an interaction with some other kinds of things. So there are these cross-modal visual auditory associations, and so we do find 
that the looks of letters do have some are somewhat predictive of certain kinds of meanings that they're in the, that they're used in certain kinds of words, which have certain kinds of meanings um, compared to the ones that are more, let's say, uh, like the pub ones. So these are these are they do occur and they happen, um, but you know they're still second order effects. I would say not first order effects. All right, I like it. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the Telium article if we can. Yeah, since we've got a little bit of time, what's it going to take to map the Telium, so to speak? Yeah, so I mean, I'm also trying to think at the same time how I, if, if there's a nice way to map this conversation about the telium back to COVID too, which is sort of a, oh, sure. I think is probably something interesting there. But there's a community of folks from the early 20th century scientists called the ethologists. And the ethologists were uh, amongst the first sort of wise biologists. And their attitude was, was all that I'm really saying when I'm making these points about the telium. I'm just trying to sort of, they didn't have anything like the genome and the phenome and all these <laughs> kinds of notions of that the government is going to spend this many gazillion dollars to map out blah, you know? So, but their attitude was like, if you really want to understand an animal and they were usually looking at the behavior behaviors of, of creatures, then you have to, you can't just bring it into the lab in some artificial environment with, you know, square corners and a white room with lights. Now you have to watch that animal in its actual habitat and you have to watch it for thousands and thousands of hours to see um, if you're interested in the functionality of, let's say, something that's you know here in terms of it vibrating and the morphological features here, and it makes some deep sounds that it's using to you know to signal to others in the same. You need to really understand this this little bag that fills with air isn't just some bag that's filled with air that you can study all on its own. You've got to watch what it's doing, when it's using it, who it's doing it to what, and you really have to understand the full structure of its life in its habitat to get everything. So if you're going to understand what it's for, it's always going to be fleshed out in terms of, oh, it's it's for vibrating at an unusually deep level for that thing because the ears of the females are disproportionately sensitive to that. And when they come, they're always hanging out in trees upside down and whatever. I mean, it's just some kind of interesting story that you, that, but that's what you need to say. And this is why it's structured like this because if it wasn't structured like this, then when they're upside down, they'd never be able to hear with their ears that are like this. I mean, usually it's not kind of <laughs> that sort of sounds very peculiar. Often the stories are actually more general, at least the ones that I'm interested in are a little bit more universal than that. But you have to understand the animals in their habitats with thousands of hours. You have to basically the idea is you become one with the creature. Uh, maybe like in the movie Avatar, you really have to really, really get one with the creature to really understand. Um, rather than just taking the thing and anesthetizing it, putting in, you know, just activating its brain and making you <laughs> experiments with its head, head pinned down. So, for example, one example that I often use is, is that imagine that a, um, a toaster falls from an airplane. And this is, reminds me of the uh, old movie, uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy. But imagine a toaster falls into the middle of the African desert and there's a tribe there uh, that's never seen um, other civilizations before and it's, so it's they're just just see a toaster for this first time it's got the got the you know the the wire coming off it and what are they gonna uh or actually like you know what maybe make it make it a stapler something like doesn't need me to be plugged in stapler now if they see a stapler to understand a stapler it's not enough just to play with the mechanisms right because a lot of the mechanisms of the stapler are irrelevant to it like for example most staplers they open up that helps you replace it, you know, to do pull something out and replace it. But you can imagine that they're 
they might try to use them as nunchucks, right? So like, mm -hmm. you know, they're holding it, they open it up and on that base, they're spinning around and they're trying to hit each other in the head. And they're like, oh, if you do it just right, occasionally stake will sticks into their side of their other person's head, <laughs> right? And then they might say, okay, now let's just practice. Let's just do all these experiments to see, you know, it's rate of closure versus, you know, what's the exact pressure to get make it open up. And they're, they're doing all these weird things that just don't have anything to do with the functionality, which is really all about fastening paper together, right? Or pass, you know, fastening, let's say, leaves together, something that's in there. But once they get that, once they get, oh, this is for fastening leaf-like things together into a bundle, well, then you now you're focused. You can look at exactly certain ranges of mechanisms that actually matter because you know, they could be bending the metal, that like the metal upon it. Like, let's bend it this way. And then if we bend it back, does it break or not? Oh, it broke. Maybe that's part of the mechanism. No, none of that matters. There's always infinitely mechanisms and infinitely many inputs that you can do to any kind of complex system. And much more so, and much you know, more complex things than a stapler that just don't matter. They were never designed for that. And when you do that, you're just, just playing games that has nothing to do with the function of that piece of equipment. And you only understand which things you should do to it versus that you shouldn't or that are irrelevant by understanding what it's for, right? And so it's only by understanding the first thing that they need to do is say, what could this be for? You know, a smart person is like, oh my God, I, this is obviously now that we see, we've got these paper-like things. It's perfect for that. It's gotta be for that. Doug, stop using it as nunchucks. You're gonna break it. That is, <laughs> right? that's, that's the whole point. You, and suddenly when you wanna go to animals and study animals, People lose their common sense and they become political and they say, no, you're racist for wanting to understand what it's for. It's like, what, what the heck, man? No, that's not how it works. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> cool. All right. Well, I think we can probably leave it there. Do you have anything to plug? Do you want to tell people where they can follow you and read your work and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I've been, you know, I've been actually, you know, for the case for this law uh, suit against the government that I, I look back after I, um, I've been, I've been, censored several times, 12-hour suspension, mm -hmm. seven-day suspension, permanent suspension, then I appealed and got back in. And eventually when the lawsuit came out, I, went, I looked at my impressions um, over the last um, over the last uh, January 2020. And you can actually see, I rise, I rise. And then in May, when Saki was starting to tell everybody that they're working with, with uh, the social media to censor misinformers. And so May was my peak impressions per month. And then since then, they sort of started turning up more and more ratchets and I just would fall and fall. I'm down, I'm down to the number of impressions is the down to before anybody knew me on Twitter. Mm. And if you come to my page, it just shows this is this tweet is censored. This tweet is censored. This tweet is censored. If you try to find me at all, you can barely find me. If you type in the last Mark Changi Z and you hit I, apparently other backup old accounts come up. And then if you hit see more at the bottom, then I come up and it says, are you sure? Because this is totally dangerous. Whoa. So, so, I mean, I'm just going to, and you can actually just see the exact um, uh, trail that they've been slowly uh, deboosting me more and more. So you can come find me on Twitter. Hopefully eventually Musk maybe, you know, undeboost me, but I would recommend if you, you know, uh, I would find me at my YouTube channel, science moment channel, Mark Chang uh, Chang I Z I. And I've got this new book uh, called um, expressly human coming out this summer. Um, uh, will be isn't pre-orderable now from I love it if people uh, order it now the more you order the more it motivates my publisher to not uh, you know play any games with it yeah uh, they want to see that it's uh, that it's peaked to, and ready to go out cool are you still updating your telegram sort of announcement channel uh, yeah I, I, so I've got a telegram channel mark Changizi channel uh, okay telegram that's very active yeah Okay, great. I muted it because I don't use Telegram very often, but I remember that it was updated pretty frequently. So I'll link to that as well. 
Mark, thank you so much. I have already pre-ordered your book. I encourage everybody else to do so as well. It'll be in the show notes and uh, I will talk to you later. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free.